Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode, The Devil at Genesee Junction. In the summer of 1966, I was 15 years old and living in my hometown of Rochester, New York. Every generation says, oh, it was a different time back then. But for me, it really was. Unfortunately, our idyllic summer of swimming at the local swimming hole was shattered when the bodies of local teens George Ann Formicola and Kathy Bernhard were found murdered and mutilated. Author of The Devil at Genesee Junction, Michael Benson, with the help of a mother of one of the victims and private detective Donald Tubman, heats up the cold case and sends the investigation in a startling new direction. transistor radio was the new thing, and every teen had theirs tuned to WBBF to hear the latest tunes spun by DJ Jessica Savage, who would later go on to be the first woman ever to anchor a national news broadcast. We knew her as Honeybee. 95 WBBF Rochester. The drugs from 1966 at 7 away from 7 o'clock. That's called Wild Thing. We've got more animals on this show. we got chickens and turkeys and seals. Right, Ferdinand Jay has got the zoo scene. I'm calling this the barnyard. Welcome to another segment of Murder Most Foul. Uh, it is my honor today uh, to have two guests, which I uh, very seldom have. Two gentlemen involved in a crime that happened back in the 60s, uh, but was a cold case and dug back up uh, much later by these two gentlemen. And in my home state and my home stomping grounds of Rochester, New York, and the, the towns that surround it, um, my two guests today, one is the author of the book, The Devil at Genesee Junction, subtitled The Murders of Kathy Bernard and George Ann Formicola, and we have 6 slash 6 6 that we will talk about. And that's Michael Benson. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Jim. How are you doing? Good. On his shoulder is his private investigator who did <laughs> uh, a lot of investigation work uh, on this book and uh, a lot of the, uh, the gumshoe stuff, which is going to be fun to talk to and talk about even aside from this book. And he's also worked with Michael on other projects. And his name is Donald A. Tubman. Good morning, Donald. Good morning, Jim. Nice to talk to you. <laughs> All right. So, Michael, let's start with you. Um, again, as I, as I pointed out, this book uh, was written many years after the, fa the fact. And again, we will, you will explain, of course, why you became interested in this case. It has a personal 
connection, aside from you living uh, in the area at the time. You now are in uh, the New York City environs, but you did grow up in the same area that this uh, crime took place. So let's go back to uh, Chai Lai, New York, I guess. Um, Genesee Junction comes from many terms, but of course, the big river in Rochester, New York is the Genesee River. And so take us back to the time and uh, the crime uh, and sort of like what your age and your situation was at the actual happening of the, uh, of the crime. Sure. Uh, this book is very different from any other book I've written. Uh, I'm a character in it. Uh, the first half of it is a solid memoir. It doesn't even turn into a true crime book until halfway through. Uh, and I worked on it for 49 years, which might be a record. I don't know, Proust may have worked longer, I'm not sure. But I didn't choose the subject, it chose me. Uh, when I was nine years old, on June 25th, 1966, George Ann Formicola, a friend of mine, my babysitter, who was 14 years old at the time and lived two houses away, and her friend, Kathy Bernhard, uh, from down the road, they went swimming in a swimming hole behind my house in Black Creek and didn't come back. It was a very hot night. They were wearing their two-piece bathing suits, and the, the swimming hole was next to a stone trestle, originally built as a towpath for mules to pull barges uh, up the Genesee Valley Canal. Uh, this was adjacent to the Genesee Junction, which was where the Pennsylvania and New York Central Railroads crossed, not far from the river, uh, and just to the east of my dad's property. It was a very rural area. We had a barn, we had a corn crib. I lived at the end of a dirt road. Uh, very isolated back there, no lights, very dark. Uh, it was graduation night at the high school, and the swimming hole was more or less uh, a little bit to the east of my house, and the girls were carrying nothing but two towels and a transistor radio, which was Kathy's prized possession, and uh, she was listening to WBBF, and various people saw them that evening wandering around, and they never returned. Um, during the time the girls were missing, some folks thought they'd just run off, uh, but experts at the sheriff's office didn't think so because they didn't take any clothes with them, no makeup, no money. The other theory was they drowned, and Kathy's mother said, both of them, they swim like fish. So there was a feeling right away that something bad had happened, and it got even worse a day after they disappeared when Kathy's broken radio was found in the weeds between the swimming hole and Scottsville Road, where the, uh, a bridge that looks, uh, a big iron trestle crosses the, the Genesee River. A, a month later, the girls were found when a farmer, uh, also in Chile, about two miles east of our house, west of our house, uh, had an unpleasant smell and he was on his track and he thought maybe one of his cows had died. And when he went looking, he found we found the girls in elderberry bushes. Uh, their remains were in bad shape, not just from decomposition, but they had been knifed to death and horribly mutilated in a manner that the, the newspapers at the day couldn't describe, although the details are in the book. Uh, the sheriff told the press that they were looking for a sex maniac. If you've read books about Jack the Ripper, you got the idea of, of what happened to these girls. They would, they, you know, they had their, their feminine parts removed, basically. Um, so I learned about sex crime before I learned about sex. And uh, the sheriff was right. Uh, when we were looking at suspects, Don and I, years later, 
we eliminated some because they were not sex maniacs. And our guy was a sex maniac and our prime suspect would have to be one as well. Um, murders had a terrible effect on my neighborhood and my childhood. It went from a paradise where we ran around barefoot and there were dirt paths leading beelines to everybody's houses and back by the creek and here and there, it all grew over because our moms put us on leashes basically and didn't let us out of their sight. Uh, so I went from you know being Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer to uh, being you know stuck inside the house a lot of the time or riding my bike just around the circle in front of my house. Uh, bottom line, I grew up obsessed with crime. Uh, the, the double homicide, in 1966 was never solved, and we never knew which one among us was a werewolf. Oh! Who's that I see walking in these woods? Why, it's Little Red Riding Hood. Hey there, Little Red Riding Hood. You sure are looking good. You're everything a big bad wolf. Don, what, what in your, you know, you weren't investigating the case, but who would be involved in this kind of investigation? Well, the initial investigation was with the Monroe County Sheriff's. And because of the nature of, of the crimes, uh, you know, missing person all of a sudden becomes a double homicide. The, the, uh, the police, the state police were involved pretty much in the beginning as well. Uh, just looking for two missing girls that shouldn't be missing at all. So they, I think they felt there was foul play. Once the bodies were found, they did have blood typing. And they fortunately did keep the evidence. But, you know, all these years later, now they can't find that bit of evidence that they need. It's there someplace in the property room. I can't imagine it being anywhere else. But blood typing was a big thing. Um, in 1969, when I got out of college and ended up, I worked at Genesee Hospital. That was an area that people were talking about. They were aware of DNA. They just were not figuring out how to use it. Um, but blood typing was huge. That part was huge. And I think that was of great concern. And they were confident, the sheriffs were confident that these fellows were, were injured when they were doing it. That it wasn't just a contact that there would be their blood. That was the, always the belief because it was just too messy. Um, they now, felt the just, loss. Just so we, you know, so the the uh, listeners are clear. My memory from the book is there was no way to prove uh, conclusively if there had been rape involved. Is that am I on, on the right track with that? Yeah. Well, yeah, in the sense that one of them had their vagina removed. Uh, and the other had been stabbed repeatedly between the legs. Uh, and so there was, there was certainly no evidence of semen on the scene. Uh, it could have been a classic uh, knife as penis crime. So again, we, we may be looking for someone who has difficulty uh, uh, performing sexually, an, an impotent man. Now, um, Michael, your book, The Devil at Genesee Junction, was published in 2015, but I know you were working on it a long time before that. So uh, how did the whole project, uh, when did the whole project begin? Right. Well, I started writing about it when I was 12. 
uh, and, and some of that, that part is still in the book, the, the part about playing with the kids and the, uh, Simon Says and Cat's Cradle, all those sections. Uh, but during the 1990s, when I was in my 30s, I was uh, editing sports magazines in Manhattan. And that was when I conducted my first investigation into the murders. Uh, and because of the sexual mutilation found at the crime scene, uh, the details of which I still didn't know, uh, I, I thought there was a good chance that the Genesee Junction killer was a psycho who had just been passing through. Uh, so after reading every true crime book that existed at that time, uh, I, I came to the conclusion that the, the fellow who best fit the crime was Arthur Shawcross, who was later convicted of being a serial killer in Rochester, uh, killed sex workers during the 1980s. Uh, there was a number of things about Shawcross's biography that got my attention. As a youth, he had established a pattern of traveling back roads by car, setting fires, and spending lengthy times alone in the woods. He turned 21 years old on June 6, 1966, 19 days before the girls disappeared. And during that all-important month, 666, he was floating around upstate New York looking for a job. Uh, as was his lifelong habit, uh, he liked to park his car and wander along streams and rivers, uh, looking for secluded places to fish. At least that's what he called it. In 1972, around the time of his first known murders, Shawcross's then wife Penny said that he'd gone on dozens of fishing trips during the time together and that he, she'd never known him to come home with a fish. So he's fishing for something, but it's not fish. He was also sexually messed up as a youth, reportedly got a sexual charge out of lighting fires. He'd been to prison once for arson, uh, he torched a factory in Watertown's factory, uh, factory street. Uh, and when he was in 1966, he'd been out on parole for a little more than a year. He was an expert with a knife. He'd worked as a butcher. He hunted deer and could dress game. Later, Shawcross would uh, talk about wanting to kill a doe so that he could use his hunting knife to remove the animal's vagina. Uh, one of the jobs he had was at Adam's Meat Market and he bragged about slaughtering 19 cows and bulls a day uh, until the crick ran red. So during the summer of 1966, he's having problems with his wife. Um, and he was driving around in a 1958 Pontiac, and according to him, picking up girls and having sex with them. He boasted that he just couldn't prevent it. He couldn't stop himself. So that's the month the girls disappear and their bodies are found in July and in August, Shawcross and his wife separate for good. And eight months later, he's inducted into the army. Was in the army, spends a couple years as a cook, comes out and after his arrest, he brags that he learned how to kill in Vietnam. And that his first murders were when he came across two teenage girls, they were Viet Cong, the enemy, not, not girls at all. He's a soldier now. Uh, came across two Viet Cong chicks, as he said, uh, in a stream, swimming in a stream, naked from the waist up, and that he killed them with a knife and mutilated them. Now, reading this, I'm going, you know, this is starting to sound a lot like if you, you take out Vietnam and you put in Chai Lai, this is Genesee Junction murders. Uh, and he, he, his post-traumatic stress uh, from his Vietnam experiences, he said, caused him to become a serial killer. Well, his stories were horrific and apparently also completely untrue. His, uh, according to his military records, he served two six-month tours in Vietnam. 
uh, and was honorably discharged in 1969 and had never been on patrol alone or otherwise, had never had a kill. And he, he spoke about many people he killed in Vietnam and all of them were female. So not many warriors go to war and manage to kill a bunch of people, but they're all, they're all chicks. Um, so anyway, he's confessing to something. During the 1980s, he's murdering sex workers and one of them has her vagina removed. She was frozen. It was the murder took place in the winter and he took it home uh, frozen and claimed that he ate it. Uh, so all in all, it, it sounded a lot like, uh, like Kathy and George Ann. So I wrote a letter to the, uh, the Monroe County Sheriff's Office explaining what I had learned. And they sent a, a little party to Sullivan County Correctional Facility to interview Shawcross. And they said, do you know anything about the 1966 murders of Kathy and George Ann? And Shawcross clenched his fists, put his chin on his chest and closed his eyes, which was his reaction when they asked him any tough question, especially ones about his mother. So I felt good. I, I felt like I had, uh, I had so, sort of gotten in Shawcross's face, at least by proxy. And I was proud of myself. Um, and my research after that was into the possible significance of the date of the killing, which was 666. And I read a book called The, uh, the Satanic Bible, written by Anton LaVey. And uh, it begins, Satanic ages last 1,458 years. It's true. Uh, the last one where God was on top and Satan was cast down started in A.D. 508. Consequently, the new satanic age began in 1966. And this time, Satan is on top. 1966 is year one, Anno Satanus, the first year of the reign of Satan. If you look back at 1966, it's a big year for evil. Uh, that is the year when, uh, when uh, let's see, on, on All Hallows' Eve, Cherry Joe Bates is killed in what perhaps could have been the first Zodiac killing. Uh, on August 1st, Charles Whitman climbed to the top of the University of Texas Tower and shot a bunch of people. The first ca on-campus mass shooting, uh, it's not Columbine, it was, it was the University of Texas. Um, and it, it, it was the year that, uh, that the eight nurses in Chicago were, were stabbed to death. Um, and the, um, there was a plan to show Alfred Hitchcock's movie Psycho in September of 1966, but they had to cancel the, the broadcast because uh, Charles Percy, who was a U.S. senator, had his daughter knifed to death two days before the, the, the showing. And they said, well, this is out of control. We're just putting ideas in people's heads. And they canceled the showing of the Hitchcock movie. So, you know, holy cow. I mean, it was like 1966 was a Pandora's box that was opened. And my murders, I'm very possessive about them, my murders took place very close to the summer solstice. If you had creepy satanic worshipers, it might be just the kind of night when they would want to do something really bad.
were looking at it, he, we were able to talk with one of the other guys, a good friend of, of uh, both of us, I guess, Jim Newell. He was a senior investigator in the New York State Police assigned to Rochester. And he went to the file after we were talking to him and he was able to get the timeline. And he believes there was no way Shawcross could have been here at the time. And that's, that's a little, well, I won't say it's disheartening because a lot of people wanted to make it Shawcross. Um, people in the neighborhood, in the Ballantyne, uh, you know, uh, Brighton area across the river, uh, our river rats, as they call themselves, they were pretty well confident that they had had an, an encounter with him earlier that summer. So that was a little bit of an upset, I guess, uh, to some of the people. But once we got on to the two brothers, um, I think we've been pretty much focused that they're, it's sort of like they're it. I can't imagine anybody else at this point. I'm just hoping that we can get DNA to resolve that. Uh, something earlier, though, we were talking about was this was a very long, it was a cold case with a lot of investigation, not so much by us. We were, we're just trying to follow what other people had done. Um, but the sheriff's office sent people all over the United States interviewing suspects. New York State Police and their involvement were in going to Pennsylvania with the sheriff's office to interview one of the fellows in, in prison down there or jail. Um, you know, there's a lot of, lot of investigation on people throughout the years would be uh, talking about it. And when I was a town policeman, they were talking to me all the time. I think I was, I think I was, I was more consumed with it than, uh, than I really wanted to be at times. And then we talked about how Mike and I, uh, and we got together. I think we got together because he realized that I had some interest in it. Um, and some knowledge of, of the people. And I think our, um, I don't know, we could talk about our dynamic. <laughs> I think we have a lot of fun. <laughs> well, we shouldn't have fun, but yes, you guys, you guys, obviously you click. How did you, uh, how did you find each other? Well, I, I, let me start by talking about Alice Bernhard, who is really the angel and the hero of the book. Um, in, in 2011, I put an item on, on Facebook commemorating the anniversary of the girl's disappearance. And I got a tremendous response, like hundreds of people. Oh, I remember that so much. I was so afraid with like a black cloud came over the neighborhood and wouldn't go away. Uh, I really wish we could solve that. And by that time I had written 10 true crime books. So people were saying, Hey, why don't you do something about it? Uh, and I got a, a message from a lovely woman, Evie Douglas, who said, you should talk to Alice Bernhardt. She really, really wants to talk to somebody official about it. And nobody would ever talk to her about the details of the case. I, I spoke first to my mom, who was a friend of Alice's. And my mom says, you know, we were sitting in the backyard at Joyce Judd's house the other day and folding chairs, drinking Coors Light. And Alice said, oh, I wish your Michael could write a book about my Kathy. And my mother said, well, why don't you ask him? Well, Alice was too shy, but I made the first move. And uh, Alice ended up signing a bunch of papers, uh, making me the uh, family investigator into the murder of her daughter. And she said, I want you to do two things for me. I want you to find out what happened to my Kathy because no one's ever had the guts to tell me. And two, 
I want you to make people think about Kathy because she died too soon and was forgotten too soon. So I, I, every time I talk on this subject, I say, please think about Kathy Bernhardt today for Alice's sake. Alice has passed away now, but uh, we're still thinking about Kathy on her behalf. Uh, and the second thing uh, we learned when we finally got uh, copies of the, the sheriff's report on the crime scene, and we learned the details of her mutilation. And I told Alice what had happened to her Kathy. And I said, look, there are defensive wounds on Kathy's arms and hands. That means she was killed quickly and all the bad stuff happened after she was gone. And Alice said, I've been worried about her being tortured for 45 years. Thank you so much. And right there, I said, this is all worth it. Who cares if there's ever a book? Who cares? Um, anyway, so one of my first phone calls after that was to Don because I, I live far away. I can only go visit my mom so often. And uh, I needed boots on the ground. And you know, Watson had Sherlock Holmes. I had Don Tubman, and I'm good with that. Don had been the local cop in, in Wheatland for how many years, Don? 17? Almost, almost 17. And when I uh, transferred to the state. <clears throat> he was a local cop when I was a teenager drinking beer behind buildings. Uh, so we had encountered each other in, in that capacity. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly what, what made me call you in the, in the first place. I just, I, I wanted you as a witness, I think, initially. And you, during your, my interview of you, said, you know, if you gave me a chance, I could solve this. And I said, okay, go. And that was that. And we, we, were, we were partners from then on. Very cool. And Michael, you, of course, had an advantage because you grew up not only in the area, but at the time, and you knew all these, uh, the people in the area. So I'm sure that most of them were very, uh, well, at least reasonable, comfortable uh, talking to you all these years later. People told me things that they would never tell a cop in a million years. They knew me when I was a little kid, little skinny kid with glasses running around. Uh, and they knew my mom, who had an angelic presence over the neighborhood. Uh, you're, oh, you're Rita Benson's boy? I'll tell you a story I've never told anybody before. And one of the first things I did when we had Alice on board is I put her on television and on the local news. And she said, if anybody knows what happened to my Kathy and George Ann too, of course, please let Michael know. And what I got were a series of messages and calls and visits from women in their 50s who all had the same story to tell. They had been raped or there had been an attempted rape on them when they were 10 to 12 years old by a member of the Wilson family, originally from Dundee, New York, and especially Clint and Keith. Now this is, this rings a major bell because Keith is married to George Ann's sister. Clint is married to George Ann's first cousin and lives two doors away from Kathy. Um, also in, in, in the, we found out that George Ann's sister married to Keith once called the cops saying Clint had raped her. Now, we knew all along that George Ann had gotten pregnant when she was 13 and had a, had a baby in a uh, home for unwed mothers. I don't know if they have those anymore, but they did then. And uh, the paternity was a question. Nobody knew. 
who the father was. But when we got a report from the when we got a report from the sheriff's office, it said that the father was Jack Starr, and he said, "Yep, I'm the guy." But when we talked to George Ann's closest family members that we could talk to, none of them believed it. They thought that she had been raped by Clint. Clint's going around raping every little girl in the neighborhood, had gotten pregnant. And Clint's also saying, if you say anything about this, you're dead meat. Now, before you go on, um, were, again, these become, you know, major suspects. Um, the uh, Star, what was his first name? His first name was Jack. So was Jack Starr and the, and the Wilson family, the Wilson brothers, were they, they weren't, you know, over here. They were uh, involved. They knew with each other. They, they knew, knew each other. Yeah. And uh, we found out that, that Clint and George Ann had a little bit of a history other than, you know, this, the, the presumption that he had raped her and impregnated her. Uh, there was a big scene at the swimming hole one time when he kept dunking her head. And even when she was you know, begging him to stop, he was basically torturing her. Uh, he had caught her once soaping his windows on Halloween and hurt her by bending her arm behind her back. Uh, so there's that history. Now, brother Keith, I knew because he lived on my street for 15 years because he was married to George Ann's sister. They lived in the house. And we were friendly. We waved and said hi. And the funny thing about him was he was a very muscular man and spoke with an incredibly high-pitched voice. And the word was that he had had an accident and had lost his manhood. So that his wife, who was quite libidinous by all accounts, had to go to neighborhood fellas to be satisfied, and he had to sit back and take it because there was nothing he could do about it. And also, he loved knives. He would take any opportunity to pull out a knife and cut something just to show everybody he was quick with a knife. So I'm thinking, okay, we've got George Ann and Kathy walking around on the other side of the creek uh, in their bathing suits, and they come across Clint and Keith. What's going to happen? Well, first of all, Clint's going to try raping them because that's what he does. And he's going to say, you make, a yeah, for, you make a word about, say a word about this, you're dead meat. Now, one thing I should have mentioned earlier, but didn't, was that on the night the girls disappeared, several neighbors heard one loud scream for help. It was so upsetting that one of the graduation parties stopped and the, the needle came off the record and everybody listened to see what was going on and there was no second scream, so the music went back on. So a knife goes to George Ann's throat, say a word and you are dead and she screams help. George Ann's body is found with her neck slit so deeply that she's practically beheaded. Uh, and Keith, who can't rape, has a knife. So, and one of the things Don and I noticed, and maybe Don can talk about this, is that there was a combination at the crime scene of hot hand and cold hand. Cool hand, better. Hot hand and cool hand. But there was an angry stabbing and then surgical removal of parts. So, Don, if we um, accept the premise that it was uh, the Wilson uh, brothers involved, 
Uh, do you think it was just one of them or do you think they worked together? I've always felt that it was both together. I, I don't know how absent a gun, maybe they would be able to pull it off. Um, the more you look at these cold case things, you'll see if you get more than one person at a time, you need two people typically. It's very rare that you see one guy being able to uh, particularly have sex or anything like that with them or and try tying them up. It's, it just doesn't seem to wash. Yeah. Hot town, summer in the city, back of my neck getting dirt and gritty. Then down, isn't it a pity? Doesn't seem to be a shadow in the city. All around, people looking half dead, walking on the sidewalk hotter than a match. Michael, do you think um, where the uh, two girls were found was the uh, murder scene, or do you think they were moved there? Uh, the, the, the crime scene is probably a dump site. Yeah. Uh, and I say that because absolutely zero blood is found underneath the bodies. Right. So they've, they've, they've drained out before they are, they are put on the, on the spot where they're found. So somewhere there's a missing crime scene that is a bloody mess. Right. And significantly, at the time of the murders, Clint's job is he drives a, gar he drives a garbage truck. And what a fantastic way to transport bodies from one place to another, if you have access to that. Because nobody saw a garbage truck driving around Lover's Lane, and that would, that would catch your attention, I think. But if you did it at 3 o'clock in the morning, you could probably do it without anybody driving past this, this <laughs> rural area. Not a lot of traffic on Archer Road in the middle of the night. Yeah. Of course, the other thing that we have is that uh, Clint's, Clint's a butcher by trade. He works at a meatpacking company. His wife works there too. Um, he and they were the. It was comical in a way when you look back, when you have the benefit of time going back, which is rare. Um, but when you do, they were always thinking it was a medical person, like a doctor. What's better than a meatpacker? You know, what's that uh, carves meat all day. So, Don, aside from uh, the Wilson brothers and Arthur Shawcross, I'm sure there were other suspects uh, that the police looked at at the time. Well, the thing, the thing that's always amazed me about the, not so much our investigation, but the sheriff's office and the state police together, um, by today's standards, that area that Michael grew up in was full of folks that would be classified as pedophiles. And I can't remember the exact number. I was trying to look on the computer, go through the names and count, but I couldn't find the, the one thing. There's a cluster. A cluster, like 30-something. So right off the bat, you got all these guys you want to talk to because they're, they probably shouldn't even be together. If you see two of them together, they probably shouldn't be. Uh, but none of them really displayed uh, a lot of violence except Keith and Clint. And Keith wasn't on the list, but Keith had his own issues from, from what we're seeing. And uh, I think the sheriff's office was, was probably the largest manhunt that they ever had in, in, as far as trying to find people. Um, it's just very complicated for them to go through everything, and they were all over. They were, and every time somebody got stopped that was any sort of strange, it would get reported back. Um, and so we, we were sifting through all the information that they had, and Michael was doing a lot of 
newspaper things, going back and finding people that we were checking out because they'd been stopped and the instances were so peculiar. Um, people like living out of their car and uh, maybe had pictures of the girls or something like that from the newspaper. Things that were curiosity that any cop that would stop them would say, so little strange, we ought to be making a report. Uh, and I think uh, going through the whole thing, it was a lot of, we felt that there was enough evidence to, to kind of go forward and interview people back in the day uh, that were my contemporaries, a little older than Michael. And uh, they had been, they had been somewhat uh, engaged with, with both Clint and, and Keith. We interviewed uh, one of the younger fellows who uh, hung out with, with Clint and did, did some things uh, where he, he couldn't believe when he was out traveling with Clint, some of the things that Clint would do as far as like he, they picked up a woman one night and, and uh, Clint was going to have sex with her in the back of a station wagon. And the guy's like, you know, well, what do I do? You know, I want to get out of here. <laughs> I'd be okay. It won't be long. So I think there's, you know, there was a lot of interviews that were conducted. Michael can, conducted a number two by, by phone. Um, and then sometimes I would get a little closer, you know, by the, I get a kick out of the boots on the ground. Um, but yeah, I'd go out and talk to people. And a lot of people, when they learned that we were looking, were calling too. That was the amazing thing. So a lot of interest because uh, I think the most apt thing was, uh, I think Michael really clued in on it with the, the devil. We had the devil walking through the backyards in Valentine in that part of Trilight. And I think people were scared all those years. I know, we, I know in Scottsville, we locked the doors as a result of that. I went off for college, came home, didn't have my key to get in. I couldn't get in the house. My parents weren't home. I couldn't believe it. I said, what'd you lock the door for? Well, you know, that guy hasn't been caught, the guy in Ballantyne. Now, um, Michael, I think you do mention it in the book. You guys met, you know, more than occasionally in person. Um, I, I think you mentioned like having coffee. Did you have like a special diner? You know, we want to get NCIS here or, you know, did you guys? Or I, think, I think we did garbage plates a couple of garbage times. Plates. All right. All right. Nick Tahoe. <laughs> well, yeah, it was uh, his, his nephew. Stevie, Stevie, Stevie Tahoe. Yeah. Um, and Nick's is for sale. Nick's is put his place on the market, 900 and some thousand dollars. <laughs> one, thing, one thing I want to say about uh, eliminating suspects, when, when we started, uh, the pervasive feeling around the Genesee Junction area was that Jack Starr was the killer. And right. it was just, that was just the belief, that was the, the myth. And as we got closer and closer to people who knew him better and better and his relatives, we found that we were less apt to find people who thought he was guilty. Oh yeah, Jack had a, had, a, had a temper, but he would never have done anything like that. He loved George Ann. You know, he was sad when they died. Uh, and it, it turned out that he had a half sister who apparently didn't like him quite so much because she told everybody she had seen him the day after the girls disappeared, cleaning his car. Uh, and so that must, he, he must've done it. Uh, there was another guy by the name of John Miller who had killed a girl in her bathing suit along the side of road in Pennsylvania. And he drove a, 
a, a car, a 1956 Chevy that was white on top, salmon colored on the bottom. And the sheriff had a witness who called him days after the girls were found and said that she and her boyfriend had been parking on the Archer Road Lover's Lane the day after the murders and they were bothered by a man in a car just like that one, a portly man wearing a straw hat who was cleaning the inside of his car with a rag and some kind of cleaning fluid. But we eliminated him because that sighting is Sunday night at a time when kids are making out and he is back at work Monday morning in Pennsylvania. And it's technically possible, but why wait around for 24 hours and then speed back so that you can work on Monday morning? It didn't seem like it was him. Right. So eventually we got to the Wilson brothers and holy God, Don talked to, uh, talked to uh, Keith's son and, yeah. and, uh, and Clint's nephew. And he'll, he'll tell you about that conversation. That was uh, pretty much a clincher. That was the defining moment for me. Um, and probably the thing that is easiest, I'd gone to school with Keith's mother. She was supposed to graduate with us uh, that night, the night of, of the abduction. Not, not Keith's, Keith's wife. Keith's wife. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm here for you. I get a little, conf I get a little confused here. <laughs> <laughs> Start again. But anyway, I'm talking to the son, and the son says to me, he says, don't worry about it. We take care of our own business. And I thought, boy, that just uh, what her I had in the back of my neck just kind of stood up. And I thought, yeah, we've got, we're on the right thing here now. The one thing, too, that we discovered along the way was that the, the Wilson family seemed to have some some difficulty with their wives. And there's always been mystery about whether the wives had killed them. Um, all sorts of different things. And then that, that's a whole nother chapter, if you will, because we know that we know that Keith gets uh, his demise comes about because of a relationship that Gina has uh, with a young man. And actually the young man, well, the young man had actually, uh, we talk, I talked to him, and it was very interesting because he'd served in prison time and then was released uh, for manslaughter. And uh, he actually was more than happy to talk about it now because I think with time, it made it uh, kind of made it sweeter for him, you know, to get it off his chest. Michael, how did uh, each of the uh, brothers uh, meet their maker, as it were? Keith's killed by a shotgun uh, by his, his, his wife's boyfriend. Okay. Uh, he brought an axe I have a list somewhere. Uh, <laughs> the, one, the one down in Alabama is, is killed by his wife who gets away with it because it's self-defense. Yeah. Um, brother Clint. Paul, we're, we're, we're not sure how he died, but he, according to uh, Clint's ex-wife, he, he, was, he was dead because of something his wife had done. And she claimed that she had once tried to kill Clint, but had uh, failed to run him off the road on his motorcycle. Now, one thing I'd like to get in quick is, is that how they were chips off the old block. Clint Sr., the father of the Wilson boys, uh, died soon after being caught uh, committing an act of incest. And we learned to our horror that Clint Jr., 
who is you know, our, our, our A number one suspect, uh, moved down to Texas with his oldest daughter and likewise was caught trying to commit an act of incest, was arrested, sentenced to 75 years in a Texas prison, but only lasted a couple of weeks because they don't like that type down there. Well, Don and, and Michael, as much as I'd like to keep this going all day, uh, pretty soon uh, Zoom is going to charge me for these Zoom meetings. But I do want to thank you, both you guys, for uh, for indulging me today on Murder Most Foul, the case, uh, the book, The Devil at Genesee Junction, The Murders of Kathy uh, Bernhard and George N. Formicola, uh, a true story. And uh, like with most cold cases, of course, there was no uh, uh, legal adjudication. Nobody was arrested, tried, or convicted. Uh, but uh, I think we're all pretty sure probably how this happened. And it, it, it minimally, Michael, you were able to give uh, Kathy's mother, Alice, some closure and some comfort and knowing that her, her daughter, uh, who was taken all too soon, did not suffer. So I guess that is indeed a good ending to the story. And once more, my guests today were Michael Benson and Donald A. Tubman. You can find books and information. Uh, Michael is the, uh, I think he's got the record for more books out there. So you just have to Google Michael Benson. You'll find author pages and Facebook pages, etc., and ways to uh, get his books online. And uh, also, uh, you know, contact him if you'd like uh maybe to interview him. Uh, he's always working on something. Indeed, Donald A. Tubman, who is his trusty uh, uh, Holmes to his Watson, um, is also working on a book right now. So again, just uh, Google uh, Donald A. Tubman, and you may find his personal page uh, on Facebook or and or uh, his investigation. Uh, his official page is also on Facebook. Uh, so once again, guys, this has been a real joy. So you guys stay safe until then, stay healthy. Hopefully we can all come together in Rochester. Or I, I really want to go to New York City where my daughter is. So we'll, we'll arrange <laughs> a, a, a garbage plate somewhere in, in either Rochester or New York City. Thanks, Jim, yeah. so much. Always a pleasure doing Murder Most Foul. Yep, indeed. Thank you, guys. Really happy that you were able to do this today. Thank you. You're welcome. My baby does the hanky paint. And last but not least, I'd like to thank my listeners to Murder Most Foul. Uh, if you liked today's podcast, I hope you'll tell your friends, share the um, the name with them. Uh, they can get it at all their uh, podcast platforms, their favorite uh, music platforms. And uh, if anyone like to get in touch with me, best way to do that is through my website, which is www.murdermostfoul, all one word no caps, no spaces.com. And there you can uh, 
read about uh, the podcasts that I've done to date and also uh, link to my email and leave me a comment or maybe even a suggestion for another case I can cover. In the meantime, stay safe and until we meet again.